0: Are you a nonprofit leader who's responsible for teaching or training anybody on your team in the community or your clients? And do you wonder if you're doing it right sometimes? Or do you wish you could be more impactful in your training? Do you wish that you could learn some techniques for creating better learning experiences? You are in luck because today we are talking to Beth Kugler-Blom. Beth helps organizations large and small create and design great learning experiences. Welcome to the Surviving to Thriving podcast that helps women leaders in nonprofits get out of survival mode and thrive in both leadership and life. I'm your host, leadership development coach, Kathy Archer, and I help women leaders enjoy impactful leadership. We're going to talk to Beth today, and she's going to teach us about some of the strategies around creating good designs for learning experiences. And we're going to talk about the three C's of designing great learning experiences. Beth has helped countless organizations, large and small, in the nonprofit world and and in other sectors, really design those great learning experiences so that when you spend all that time creating and designing training, that it actually works and has that impact. Whether you are doing formal training in your organization, whether you're having a one-to-one conversation with somebody on your team and you're hoping they will learn, maybe it's orientation in your staff team, the volunteers you work with, whatever it is, when you want somebody to learn, then how do you actually get them to learn? You're going to hear some of those strategies from Beth today. Let's transition into the show. Welcome to the podcast, Beth, I'm so excited to talk to you about designing a great learning experience, because I know that tons of nonprofit leaders are struggling with that. So before we dive into that, can you just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about sort of how you got to where you are and what it is you do now? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks for having me
1: here. My name is Beth and I'm a facilitator and a learning designer. These are funny terms to people. They often haven't heard, especially the word learning designer. Sometimes we're called instructional designers. And basically what it means is I work with people to help them design great learning experiences in any mode. I Got to my current role, I suppose, in a bit of a roundabout way, I always say I started, you know, as well, I started as a coordinator of training. So someone that, you know, was more behind the scenes coordinating training that other people were teaching and offering events and so on. And then over the years, I became a trainer myself. And then I realized kind of the difference between training and facilitation and, you know, moved into what I now know to be more of a facilitative approach, but also made that journey from being an employee in other people's organizations to now as an entrepreneur and working across sectors with various different types of clients. So kind of a couple of arcs, I suppose. Yeah. And what do you do with your clients now? Yeah, I have three different things that I do with them. So sometimes people come to me for, they want to build a course, they're not quite sure how to do it. And it's online or it's in person, either one. And so they, they work with me and I help them build that course. So they know their subject. I know how to build courses and we work together. Other people come to me because they need to learn how to teach or how to facilitate. And so my the things I teach or the workshops that I hold or are about education-based topics. So helping people learn how to teach or learn how to design uh, great courses. And then the third thing is straight group, we would call it group process facilitation. So let's say someone needs a facilitator for a strategic planning session or having a group come together and make decisions or that kind of thing. And they sort of need that, quote unquote, neutral third party person to come in and help them do that. And that's uh, the third way that people can work with me. So it's a lot of variety. And I love that about you know the different types of projects I get to work on.
0: And one of your most recent sort of mini courses is, was around how to use Zoom. Like how to like I love this is this is so cool because those of you listening who had to learn Zoom and are still struggling with Zoom, Beth actually let you practice how to go into Zoom rooms. And like that's not easy for, you know, I mean you can watch a few videos but to then actually get the opportunity to practice, that's pretty cool. It's true. And
1: I, as you can imagine, this last year with the pandemic, that side of my business, of course, anything to do with online learning, I had already been doing. But then, you know, I've been doing it even more, I suppose, this past year. And so there's always that technical piece that, you know, we have when we're we're facilitating online, that it's not just about facilitation, it's about knowing the technology and the platforms, isn't it? And feeling comfortable and confident with that. And so I, I do like to hold um, workshops, and those are small ones where I help them learn breakout rooms it's like you get to push all the buttons so that when you have your session you hopefully feel more comfortable and confident and people actually really love it so um,
0: yeah so
1: so we talk about both the technology and then what we would call the pedagogy you know the the pieces around designing and facilitating good learning experiences right yeah say that word again pedagogy oh so what does that mean well, you know it's funny how people use it in the field. It became kind of this ubiquitous term for um, how we help people learn. like true true people in the field might say andragogy" for it to be related to adults, but uh, and pedagogy was uh, more for, I guess children. maybe you would think like k to 12. but really, I think in practice, people just sort of started using pedagogy for everybody.
0: <laughs> um, I think that we we assume we just talk and people learn. Or if we we put together the right outline, people will learn. And there's so much more to it. And so we're going to dive into the three C's of designing a great learning experience. And what I want to, you know, really underscore there is the word designing. It has to be intentional. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, that's sometimes what we forget. So I know that some of the work you do is, you know, creating courses and and that kind of stuff. I also want to use some examples as we're going through this today around, you know, what if I'm just doing a little mini training session during staff meeting? Or, you know, like kind of that broad range around, you know, how do you create that learning as well in different moments? Because I think as a nonprofit leader, it ranges. And I know lots of people are creating courses and designing training material. And on the spectrum, they're also doing that. So... Yeah, that's so
1: true. So, there's a big spectrum of what um, training or, you know, learning experiences look like in all of our environments. Like, isn't it? Because even if it's just a leader going to one of their staff members or volunteers, and having like a little mini one on one conversation about something to do with somebody's learning, that can also be you know, we can come to that with an intentional approach, can't we about, you know, maybe asking questions more than just kind of telling them all the things or or that type of thing. So we we can think more about micro, sometimes we say micro learning yes. opportunities. And that's a little example of, of coming intentionally but, to not just micro, but the, you know, the not or I should say, not just the macro things, but the yeah. micro, micro opportunities.
0: Well, and I think sometimes we also forget things like Just when you said that, I'm thinking, how many new hires, new volunteers have we had where there's an orientation and it's like, here's the binders, just go sit in the corner and read the binders and sign off that you read them. And we expect them to learn from that. You know, I mean, like sometimes it's a half day, a full day, like there's a lot of stuff that we throw at them and we want them to learn. It's so true. We, I actually had a client come to me um, about a year,
1: year and a half, sort of post or pre-pandemic, I should say, and they said, we've realized that our volunteer orientation is kind of unidirectional, like we're really just talking at them when they're coming and we want to do it a better way. So I worked with them to kind of turn things around and also lessen, I think, those pieces. It's like, what do they really know at that or need to know at that, you know, that early time in their Kind of lifespan with the organization,
0: they probably didn't need to know as much as they originally were throwing at them. Yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah, we feed them way too much. So before we dive into the components of a great learning experience, what's not so great learning experiences like? Can you give us some examples of what you've seen or heard or experienced? Yes, I'm sure I've
1: experienced some of those not so great myself. I feel sometimes I'm kind of critical when I come into other people's sessions. I hope that doesn't make people nervous to have me in the room. But I look, you know, I watch everything and learn from other people's examples, as we all do, right? We learn sometimes what um, from what not to do. We learn, you know, to do the opposite, don't we? Um, you nailed it, I think, when you said earlier, and I actually use this phrase myself, just because we talked doesn't mean somebody learned. But it's funny because a lot of us learned through that kind of thing. You know, we learned, you know, and I, you know, I talk about in my book that I took history for my first degree and you better believe I sat in a lot of long lectures. And I, of course, I did learn something from that, but we can only talk for so long before we have to stop and engage people. So I I think the, you know the mistakes that people make sometimes are just going on and on, and not stopping for engagement and participation, and inviting that from their group. So the sort of too long presentation and the or the too long lecture is, I think, one pitfall that people tend to fall into.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? What else would you say is like a poor or bad learning experience? What are some of the the um, hallmarks of one of those? I think another thing is around terrible
1: PowerPoint use, (laughs) to be honest. And when I wrote my book, I interviewed 30 facilitators to, you know, inform the book and then ask them all sorts of questions about uh, their own facilitation and learning experiences. And I said, I asked them the question about pitfalls and a lot of them said terrible PowerPoint use or misuse. And I always say PowerPoint can be a barrier between ourselves and our participants. And I'm noticing that even more for myself online these days, you know, when you're in zoom and you share your screen, somebody can't see, uh, you know, as many people anymore if they're only on one monitor. And so I'm really, you know, when I was, you know, Uh, teaching in person, I was really trying to use PowerPoint wisely if I was going to use it at all. And now online, I'm even thinking that much more intentionally about reducing my PowerPoint or not using it at all so that it doesn't become that barrier between us.
0: Yeah. Well, and and the PowerPoint in general, or the PowerPoint that's like a paragraph on a slide.
1: (laughs) through reading exactly what's on your slide. Somebody standing there reading while they're presenting. I'm like, I'm standing can't read and you, reading. We can all read. And you know, we call it in the business cognitive overload. We should yeah. not read from our PowerPoints ever because people can read. And so when they're reading and we're also reading and talking, it's just too much for our brains to handle. Yeah. And so I always say that if people can understand your PowerPoint later after the session, you know how people say, oh send me the PowerPoint after yes. And, uh, you know, if they miss the session and it's like mine are completely useless to people after the session because they're they're not bullet pointed full of information pieces. They're not content dumps. No, no. Most of mine are an image and a word or two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I used to say, you know, maybe instructions, like in the face to face uh, room, you would perhaps have instructions on there. But I'm eliminating even those these days and just putting them in the chat. Because like, if you're in Zoom, you need the the breakout room instructions in the chat, right, to go into the room. So there's kind of, we're evolving our use, I think, as we do more online these days. (laughs)
0: All right, so that's what it doesn't look like when we don't or what we don't want, which we've already started talking about what we do want. But let's dive into the three C's of sort of designing this great learning experience. So, the first one we're talking about is curiosity. Tell us why curiosity is so important in designing these learning experiences.
1: Curiosity is something that I think over the years, I've realized that, you know, that's the difference between, you know, perhaps a great teacher or a great facilitator and not. And it's the mark of a lifelong learner. When we're curious about, not just ourselves, but other people and the field, you know, the field that we're in or the field of education kind of, you know, if we're if we're developing workshops, you know, if we come to things with a curious mindset, I think we're always searching for how to do something a better way. But we're also a little bit kind to ourselves that, you know, maybe we made a mistake and, you know, we're kind of curious with ourselves about perhaps why that happened or, you know, something that happened with the group and, and we're just, we let ourselves off the hook a little bit going, you know, we're not perfect. We can't really nail it hundred percent all the time when we're facilitating something. So just to be gentle and and curious and ask ourselves why we think things happened and, and so on. So there's lots to do with being a lifelong learner in this, in this business and, and curiosity is kind of the center point of that
0: you know, I study character traits and curiosity is one that is highly correlated with success and achievement and also with happiness. So, interesting correlation, but it's also highly correlated with lifelong learning. And mm. so, the two go hand in hand. If you are going to figure out a better way or learn how to do something, yeah, you're you're learning and growing. And I yeah. think it's so critical for us to if it's not a strength of ours, you know boost it up and, and figure out how to be more curious. I think so.
1: And doesn't it also help us stay away from judgment? You know, if something happens in the, you know, in the workshop where we like our lizard brain, you know, the lizard brain, it's like our old brain, you know, part of our brain, it's like, we'll react, right? Maybe it's just inside of our heads, Mm -hmm. but we'll react in sometimes in judgment first. And we have to check, you know, check that there's part of that to just check and make sure that we don't, you know, visibly react. But then that curiosity, I think has to kick in and go, oh, interesting, you know, why would that person have said that? Or why, why do we think that thing happened that way? Or what could I have done that maybe contributed to that? Or So we're sort of gentle with others, but we're gentle with ourselves and, and trying to stay out of judgment and just thinking, okay, there must be something going
0: on that I just don't understand yet. So what is that? I'll give you an example. That happened yesterday. So I was doing training for a group of uh, people, 30 people in the Zoom room two hours of training. And we're talking about how to coach your employees. And so learning coaching skills around, you know, and that's new, and it's not easy. And there's a lot of curiosity involved. And so I, I had primed them earlier on. But at the end, I said, I'm going to leave a few minutes if somebody wants to do a demo with me for coaching. So you know, we get to the end, and I'm like, would anybody like, you know, for me to coach them for a few minutes, so you can see what it's like? Silence. And I'm waiting and waiting and like nothing, nobody volunteered. (laughs) And so, yes, that lizard brain goes, oh, Kathy, nobody wants you. Like, they don't like you. They don't want you to do it. You've done something wrong. And then the other part of my brain goes, interesting, right? Like Mm -hmm. very interesting. What would have created the environment for them to feel safe to do that? Or Why wouldn't they feel safe to stick their hand up? And, you know, so it just, yeah, created that curiosity around, you know, is there a different way to do it? Yeah, yeah. And it
1: makes us ask the questions to maybe elicit from the group, what just happened there? Or, you know, you could kind of tease into it and go, help me understand, you know, what's holding you back? Or what's the barrier to you taking this risk right now or something, right? I think curiosity helps us ask better questions, probably as a trainer or facilitator,
0: So ask better questions after to learn, but also during from ourselves and the people involved. Yeah, absolutely. Questioning is, I always say it's a
1: lifelong journey for me to learn how to ask great questions. I mean, as a coach, you would, you know, that's very similar, isn't it? In that, in a coaching career, you're always asked learning how to ask really excellent questions and facilitation is the same because a great question can take us to really juicy, meaty places that... You know, if we had never, well, if we'd never asked the question at all, we would have never, never gone there. there. But the, yeah. you know, an effective question can take us to places where not not only the group learns that we're, you know, quote unquote, teaching, but that we learn perhaps as well as someone who is facilitating the session. And that's yeah. also fantastic around curiosity, isn't it? Isn't that the best case scenario where we also learn something as the person who is, is oh, teaching the yeah. session?
0: The other thing I'll say about curiosity, and this comes from the coach perspective, I think we're often looking at what do I want them to learn by the end of this? You know, what are the outcomes? What are, you know, those kind of bullet points. But I'll often ask personally, like when I'm doing training, but also when I'm working with other people, what do you want them to feel? At the Mm. end of the session. And, you know, because I'm always coming back with this emotional intelligence. And, you know, do you want them to feel inspired or curious or, you know, um, confident? Because if if you want them to feel confident at the end, for example, the Zoom, you know, understanding Zoom rooms, then they actually have to practice it. If you just train them but never let them practice, they probably wouldn't have the confidence to do it. They would have the knowledge but not the practice. And so yeah, I often sort of ask that question, you know, by the end of it, how do you want them to feel? I like that. And
1: you're going into what's called the effective domain. Like when we write learning outcomes, we often stay in the cognitive domain. So there's cognitive, effective, and psychomotor. And cognitive is kind of where a lot of people like to hang out. And, you know, because we think it's sort of knowledge head step first. Yes. But the effective is a really great um, area to go into, of course, as, like, as you're saying, you know, what do we want people to feel or to value or to believe? There's all sorts of areas that we can kind of play around with, with the effective domain. Mean. And, you know, you say about confidence, often I do have something related to confidence in certain courses or the clients I work with say that they want their participants to increase their confidence in some way. But yeah. you also mentioned about kind of practice. And I think that's, you know, if you're going to write learning outcomes, it really drives you to creating opportunities for practice and talking about pitfalls. That's that's a real pitfall that people come to the creation of a learning event with kind of, here's all the stuff I'm going to tell you about. And they don't give people the pra- time to practice, do they? And no. so you really can't kind of have that check and balance of, you know, you wrote a learning outcome, but then you never actually put anything in the session where you were going to see people doing the thing or accomplishing the thing or and demonstrating give them feedback. it. Give them. Yeah. So and so that's the kind of mismatch that I often help people fix is like, let's write measurable learning outcomes and let's put stuff in the actual session to help people achieve it when you can see it happening or, or you know, you know, some something that happens after the session is fine, too. Right. But yeah. where's the practice piece? That's where yeah. people often fall down.
0: So the first C is curiosity. The second one is courage. Tell us a little bit about courage in creating these design or designing these great learning experiences.
1: Yeah, courage is um, you know so apropos, I suppose, for coming to things as a trainer, facilitator, teacher. I, always, I kind of kind of use different words in different sectors, different contexts. But there was a, a pretty renowned um, teacher in the field, Parker Palmer, and he wrote a book called Courage to Teach. And you know he nailed that phrase, didn't he? Because it does take courage to stand up in front of a group and work with people and and be vulnerable and you know, sometimes fail, you know, in front of the group and you know, admit your failures or try to work through things with the group and not show up as perfect because we can never do that and so on. So there's lots of things around being courageous and vulnerable that we have to just recognize and but sort of deal with too I mean I've been finding even myself this year teaching more you know in zoom and zoom based tools that it almost feels a little bit more vulnerable than normal and I've actually been teaching online for years um probably for almost 10 years now and but only teaching online and not having the opportunity to see people face to face it's right. it's a little hard on the ego I must say that you know, when you when you teach face-to-face, when you work with groups, they come up to you after and they go, Oh, Kathy, that was such a good session. <laughs> <laughs> and so our ego goes, Yeah, right, I mailed it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and so you not everybody does. Of course, there's always something that you can learn and you know grow from. But you know, when people leave our Zoom sessions at the top of the hour and scoot off to something else, it feels like this vacuum sometimes. And so we have to still stay strong in our our capabilities i suppose that we're still doing good work you know even if we don't get all those kudos maybe that we would have gotten in the face to face environment
0: yeah and i'll add to that i don't see the head nods or the there's not a, a affirmation that what i'm saying is landing yes. and so yeah it's like i'm saying this and i don't feel the feedback that i would normally feel when i face to face in a conversation. And it's different if it's the two of us. At least I can see your face. But as soon as you add 8, 9, 10, 30, 40, 50, you know, people on Zoom, you can't even tell who's talking anymore, let alone see their facial expressions, or half of them have the call, the video off, and rightfully so, right? And so, yeah, it's that, that vacuum. Would you suggest, I was thinking about this as you were talking. So, I think when I think about courage, one of the things I've often done is ask for feedback after, you know, a survey or something like that. But I think there's courageous questions we can be asking in that feedback survey. Have you looked at that at all? Well, let me
1: think about that courageous questions. I mean, even to ask for feedback is the first step, isn't it? In being courageous because sometimes we forget to do that, especially for short sessions where it's just, you know, something half an hour for a networking group or that kind of thing. I really always try to ask for feedback. Sometimes when I'm facilitating something for a client and I think I might not see feedback right away or, or they might not be asking for feedback. I try to ask in the actual session and yeah, so just asking for feedback first is courageous. I'm just trying to think of, hmm, do I have a courageous question that I ask? I don't know. I
0: ask for feedback in different ways. I don't know. Do you have a courageous question? I'm just trying to think if I- You know, not off the top of my head either, but one of the things I think that might be valuable is to, depending on what you're doing, but jump one-to-one in with one or two of the participants after. Mm, you know, somebody yeah. who was engaged and somebody who wasn't. yeah. You know? Because I think, think, again, surveys are words and people often just kind of fill it out, you know, either quickly or don't fill it out. Or sometimes the person who really has some valuable feedback isn't going to fill it out. And so you miss some of that. So I don't know. That's one thing off the top of my head. But, you know, another question I often ask just just in general with people is what are you afraid to tell me?
1: Mm, uh, That's a great question. Yeah. 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 Sometimes I say, you know, what would you have wanted me to change or what would you want me to change for the next group kind of thing? So it's, it sort of takes the pressure off that they, you know, they don't want to tell me I screwed up something, but they could say, well, if you were going to do this again, maybe you'd choose to do this differently. Sometimes I talk about, and I even do this when I help people learn how to facilitate is let's talk about alternatives. It's like, we're not saying that what you did (laughs) in the facilitation was bad uh, or ineffective, but we're just saying, what would be another way to come, you know, to come at that thing, to do it a different way, you know, an alternative that's just as good. So, um, yeah, so there's maybe gentler ways
0: we can approach it. Absolutely. And but that also might connect to the outcome you look at, right? So yeah, it wasn't that you did it wrong or bad. But how could you do it in a different way to better reach your outcome that you desire? Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I think there goes
1: the curiosity part again, isn't it? It's like we're always asking ourselves as facilitators, as designers of learning to go, can we do that? thing a better way next time. And actually, somebody said to me once, oh, Beth, can we just leave that workshop alone and not tinker with it? And we just, you know, teach it for a few times the same. And I'm just like, no, (laughs) (laughs) no, I'm always looking to, you know, do something better. But groups are different from each other as well. So, what lands with one group sometimes doesn't land with another group. So, we're always kind of trying to figure out what the sweet spot is of what we've done and what works and what's effective, aren't we?
0: So, my ego wants me to ask, so I rarely teach the same thing exactly the same. Like I'm always tinkering and changing slides or experiences. Am
1: I doing it right? I think so. I think we're always, <laughs> you know, it goes back to, um, you know, well, maybe I'll, I'll. I'm getting ahead of myself for the next. Season. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, that, you know, creativity. like it's the creativity, right? So yeah. creativity. I like you. I mean, maybe it's because I just get bored with myself. (laughs) I don't really want to teach the same thing in the same way all the time because I get bored. You know, I almost, it's a, it's been a weird thing writing a book about this subject because I'm, it's, I'm sort of facetious when I'm saying this, but I'm sometimes boring myself because I've written, you know, you spend so much time writing it, you know, you've written a book too. You spend so much time writing the draft and kind of sitting with the way you talk about things and writing and rewriting and drafts, blah, blah, blah. And so when I say things verbally to people in my head, I sometimes think, oh my gosh, I'm so boring because I've said that to myself many times, but the other person is hearing it for the first time. And I have to remember that it's new information to them, but I'm boring myself. It's a bit weird, right? It is weird. Um, And so it makes me want to keep moving my practice forward and learning and growing. But I have to remember that other people are in different spots and they do need to hear some of those messages that I've been telling myself and others for years.
0: Well, and that's what I was just going to ask. What's the the number of times somebody needs to hear something for it to sink in. Oh, there's research around that. Isn't there, do you know it? I'm not sure. I don't know it, but it's like 10 or 12 or 15. like, it's
1: huge. right? Yes. I know. So, I think it's like the that stuff about developing a habit or is yeah, something similar isn't it? It's like, I've been walking for, you know, 28 days straight, and maybe it's yes. now a habit, but we have yes. to say those things over and over again to ourselves. When
0: you're, when you're talking about creativity, I, I often, and I've noticed it in other books, and that's probably where I've picked it up from, I try and use alliterations or short little snappy things so that when they're remembering, right, if I can say that same thing over and over and over again. So in my book, I teach the inner guidance cycle, pause, ponder, pivot, proceed, pause, ponder. Like, I mean, if you've listened to this podcast, you've heard me say that a zillion times, right? Um, yeah. Do you, when we, when you're talking about teaching facilitating with creativity are you saying some of those things like how do you create stuff that people can let sink in
1: I think that could definitely be part of it like you're talking about kind of a memory hook or a mnemonic and I think that can be a one like one way I guess I'm always trying to think of how do we get people to sit up and and pay attention, right? Like, how do we hook them in, and ignite, you know, what they didn't even know was a passion for the topic or or something uh, inside themselves. So we're looking for pieces to do that. And it could be a mnemonic, it could be a story. Um, it's, it's something, isn't it that we yeah, think thinking, is going to hook them in? Yeah, Yeah,
0: stories are critical. And I think we often forget the story piece in training.
1: Well, and you did it in this podcast itself because, you know, we started our conversation kind of talking about the terrible learning events, didn't we? And sometimes talking about the worst case scenario or the pain points or that kind of thing can be a great way to enter into a conversation because it sort of makes people, you know, wake up and pay attention. Um, Just uh, yesterday, was it yesterday? It doesn't matter. Yesterday, I was doing um, a facilitation where we did this activity called TRIZ. It's from a set of activities called Liberate. Structures. Mm. And the first step of TRIZ is to talk about, to get people to talk about how to create the worst result. So we were asking them, okay, talk about, you know, and write ideas down about how can we create the worst virtual learning experience ever where no one participated, everyone had a terrible time, and no one learned anything. And so, and someone said, oh, that's interesting how you came at that activity. You know, you came at it at a different way. You know, often we want to be so positive and talk about, you know, the good things, but but that was like, no, how can we just really screw up? And then, you know, the next steps are, okay, which, you know, which of those things might we actually be doing in some way, shape or form? And then if we are doing those things, how would we stop them? So it it gets people excited. It's not only fun, it gets people kind of being real with themselves, um, uh, you know, talking about those terrible things that, you know,
0: we've all done at some point in time. So when I think of creativity. I love that you said, what was the name of that that thing again? The kit? The activity. Uh, oh, the kit,
1: the um, the the set of, uh, of activities is called Liberating Structures. Right, right. So if anyone's looking for, you know, a place to find activities that work either in person or online, check out, it's liberatingstructures.com.
0: Yeah. And we'll put that link in the notes. Right. But that's what I wanted to say. I think sometimes uh, I, when I was writing my book, I was reading a lot about, you know, writing and trying to figure out the creative process, because it is a creative process. And often we're trying to generate creativity from an empty bucket. And so if we don't, you know, get it, stuff in there, it's really hard. And and what they were talking about, some of the stuff that I was reading was, you know, we stay in this, this box of I am teaching about for me, it's confidence and leadership and that kind of stuff. And yet, that that sort of becomes stagnant after a while. Like you said before, it gets boring. Yeah. So, when I'm listening to podcasts, I'm listening to podcasts about zillions of other things. Or I'll make sure that I get out in nature. And you and I were just talking before we hopped on. You're sewing. I'm crocheting. I picked up painting a little while ago, and I'm nothing brilliant at it. But doing something creative outside of when you're sitting down to do the work helps you awaken that other part of your brain.
1: Oh, absolutely. And actually, um, I sometimes, well, in pre-pandemic times, I would go and troll libraries and go over to like the nonfiction section or the arts and crafts. And I remember pulling out a book once on quilting and I'm not a quilter. And I was just kind of flipping through it. And the person was talking about, you know, having a design wall and my brain immediately goes design wall that's so cool i can use that in my own work too right like cuz i have a whiteboard on my wall and i also design the sticky notes and this and that so i don't know if my brain is different than other people's brains maybe maybe you and i have the same kind of brain cuz i i look at other fields information like that and i automatically think wow that's so neat i can use that in my field and i think the more we kind of get outside our own field and learn from others um you know because somebody else has figured out something that we could apply to our own discipline and that would unlock unlock creativity and innovation with me. it
0: it did for me the other day so i'm reading it's called mere christianity and it's by c.s lewis so the same author of the the narnia series right yes and just a brilliant book that is, that is referenced often around moral character. And so, he's talking about marriage in it. And it's really interesting how, you know, we fall in love as a feeling, but then love has to become an action to keep your marriage strong. And so, you know, I'm reading this and I'm talking to my husband about it. And we're like, this is very cool. And then I'm like, wait a minute, that's the same in organizations. I mean, you get into an organization and you're in love with the organization and it's amazing and, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, uh, 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 right? <laughs> it's kind of like the seven-year itch that we get in marriage. And so it's the <laughs> same idea. And so I'm like, oh, I could write a whole, you know, blog post about that and, and teach a session on how to stay in love with your job. And, you know, it's, it's getting those ideas from different places and pulling them in.
1: It is. It really is. And isn't that the mark of, you know, if we t- bring it back to kind of training and facilitation, the people that are successful in this field are the people that do that kind of thing. Like we're always looking at other people doing this work and learning from them and, and saying, okay, how can I do that thing myself? Or how can I take that and kind of change it a little bit and make it work for me? Or I don't know that if we don't go out and look at things in the world, and inspire ourselves, how could we really be doing great work, you know, and, you know, it's funny, um, well, it's not funny, but when I get too busy in my work, you know, this year, of course, everyone's like, hey, you know about online education, yeah, I think yeah, I yeah. need to talk to you, um, but when I get too busy and make the mistake of kind of filling my schedule up too much, I don't have as much time to do those kinds of things, you know, my reading, my professional reading drops off, you know, the, the creative kind of side sewing projects and yeah. so on, like, I can't do that as much. And, and and there's something missing then. Like I d- I'm not doing as much good work for anybody because I've taken on too much work. And so there's almost that sweet spot of just deciding how much work we should be doing and how much we should be adding in, in terms of white space, right? And I know nonprofits are dealing with this. I mean, so much, aren't they? Because there's just so much work to do. But the more we can carve out time to just think or read or you know just kind of get those inspiration pieces whatever they look like I think we'll all be in better stead for it. We could do
0: better work. Oh absolutely. I if I could make you go back and say that line again. How can we be inspiring others when we're not inspiring ourselves? Like that's exactly yes. it. And yeah. especially in the nonprofit world and in many worlds, the job, like I say, we get into the job because we love it, but it can become soul sucking real fast. Mm. And if you're not doing those other things to continue to feed your soul, yeah, Yeah. you're, like I say, you're empty, you've got no creativity, no inspiration, nothing left. And so you need to be filling that cup up sometimes. You're, you're so right. We can't
1: just give and give and give. And believe me, I believe in giving. I mean, I'm a volunteer too. And I taught volunteer management earlier in my career. I, was, I worked at a volunteer center, you know, as a training coordinator. But we have to give to ourselves. And even just before March break this year, I recognized in myself that I've been teaching so much online and, you know, provi- it's, it's vulnerable to, t- you know, to facilitate workshops about facilitation because, you know, you have to model Her exactly How's she doing. People don't just listen to what I say, they watch what I do. And I just recognize that I needed a break. And I think if we all hover above ourselves all the time and kind of watch ourselves doing our work, that we'll recognize when we need to take those breaks. And two weeks March break to not facilitate for a while was really good. And I was able to come back to it with a renewed sense of energy and you know inspiration and so on. And, and it's not, I'm not saying I've got it all figured out, but those those recognizings i think are really crucial to
0: us being able to bring our best selves to our oh world. totally agree you're you're speaking to the choir <laughs> <laughs> sounds
1: like we have a, something in common absolutely
0: in that uh, so curiosity courage and creativity those are the things that are really going to help somebody design intentionally design that really great learning experience i want people to go grab your book So this is one of those books you can sort of see where's my oops I gotta get in I like when I get into books I'm like highlighting probably can't see but I'm highlighting and I'm making notes and this is one of those ones that I am like writing all over so uh, tell people about your book what would they learn from reading your book.
1: Yes, well, I wrote the book. You know, I started to write the book for people in community organizations. And so, if you work in a nonprofit or community organization, this book is for you. But actually, when I started showing drafts of the book to people, they said, "Oh, Beth, it's this is going to be for more than just people in that sector." And so that's you know that's what it is. anybody who's working with groups and helping them learn something. Um, but it's really about how do we? You know, we start off thinking, what do we believe about what good you know good learning experiences look like. And then go into kind of more hardcore design skills, you know, how do we spend more time and effort in planning and taking that intentional time to design great learning experiences? What what does that even look like when you haven't been taught how to do that in the field and trying, you know, trying to give people really concrete tools to be able to approach planning Um, effectively. And then, you know, there's pieces in there around participatory activities. Because I mean, it's called Design to Engage. I had to sit and go, how do I title this book? What's the crux of the message? It's like, if we spend time in design, and our intention is around inviting people to participate and to engage in our sessions, those are the sessions that are going to help people really learn. The sessions where people don't learn as much are the ones where we don't let them be involved. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, we go through, you know, there's some pieces around facilitation skills and and challenges that arise and that sort of thing and and gathering feedback and looking at our own practice and self-reflecting, you know, some things we forget to do. So, I really try to take people through the arc of what it looks like to design Um, effective learning experiences. But I I wrote the book for face-to-face sessions. I mean, who knew a global pandemic was going to hit, right? (laughs) I suppose I could have written the book about online education because I've been designing for online since 2005. So, I've been in both, you know, face-to-face and online for a long time. But so many foundational strategies, or I should say it another way, so many strategies are foundational to both modes. You know, like if we kind of unlock the keys of learning design and designing for engagement, it works both face-to-face and online. So um, so I tried to write the book for people who were busy and who weren't in the field. And, you know, I, I tried to write it that they would actually enjoy reading it and it felt doable. I really
0: wanted it to not be academic or not look boring. (laughs) And I think I've been able to achieve that. Okay, so I love the feel of books and this book feels amazing, but it's also got like all these cool colors. Like that was like so helpful. But what I will also say is it's full of great stories and good quotes. I love the quotes. Lots of exercises, which I want you to talk about in half a second. But the other thing I will say for the women leaders that are listening to this, the struggle we have is we lack confidence sometimes, and we think we should know how to do it. But many of the people in nonprofits moved up the ranks from frontline, and we haven't been taught how to do all of those other things. We assume we should just know it. And yet, I mean, you don't, nobody's taught you design, nobody's taught you how to teach, you're not a teacher. You know, maybe you're a rehab worker, a social worker, a childcare worker, like, but you're not a teacher, You're not a design expert, and yet you're trying to be that, and it's no wonder you lack the confidence. And so that's where this courage comes back in, the courage to learn, the courage to be curious, the courage to ask questions, to get help. It's so critically important.
1: It really is. And that's why I wrote the book. I looked around. I had a foot in both community organizations, you know, the nonprofit sector and in higher education, because I worked as an instructional designer in universities um, and in the nonprofit actually as well. And so I looked at both sectors and I thought, oh, interesting, you know, some people in higher education have figured out how to teach, right? I mean, there's faculty development is a thing, in post secondary institutions we you yes. know we normally have courses for faculty to help them learn how to teach and so i started looking back at the at the nonprofit sector going well how are how are those people learning how to facilitate yeah. workshops and they were just falling into it and that's how i came to it too i just started my career and i was a training coordinator and then somebody asked me to do a training and i just kind of fell into it i mean i did a masters in education eventually but that's super rare isn't it for yes. people to go and do that kind of education And so I wanted to bring back all the things that I had learned from being in higher ed and being, you know, watching and being in nonprofits and doing the master's degree and go, how do I write the book that I would have wanted for myself earlier in my career for the people that just fell into it? Because almost everybody does. And that's normal. And so to recognize that, yeah, I was never taught how to teach and almost nobody is. (laughs) That's outside of, you know, an actual teacher in K to 12. And that's you know, there are tools, uh, such as this book and other places that they can go to to go and get them. And they just, you know, the hard part is carving out the time. So I just tried to write the book that they could dive into and, and that could support them along the way when they had the time to do
0: it. So where can they find the book and the very cool exercises and worksheets that you've got to go with it?
1: The website is designed to engagebook.com, so that leads people to my site and they can buy the book from me. But they can also buy it at worldwide online re- retailers, so Amazon.ca or .com or Indigo in Canada here and uh, and otherwise. Oh, and, and it's available as a an ebook or a paperback or hard hardcover, and I also have an audio book, so you can listen
0: to me. Read the book if you would like to do the audio version. And my guess is, because I'm also a library user, I bet it's in some of the libraries out there. I think
1: it's starting to be in libraries. Yeah, I have a little bit of a distribution problem with my publishing company around the ebook being in libraries. Unfortunately, they just kind of haven't been able to figure that out yet. But I I hope that there'll be paperback and hardcover copies. But people could request it of their library too. And that's a possibility. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So, and your website is? My website is bethcuglerblom.com. And I know you're probably going to put that in the yeah, show I'll notes so people know how to spell it. Yeah. And where do you want people to follow you? I am I show up most on Instagram, to be honest. I really love that, you know, sort of micro blogging tool. Um, so Instagram is a great place my Facebook page kind of feeds out from there. LinkedIn is great as well for me. And I, and I have a a blog on my website. I'm not a super regular, you're probably a better blogger than I am these days, but I've been blogging for a long time. And so lots of the things that I talk about in my book, you know, somewhere along the way, I kind of blogged about it first or, or similar. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of places to
0: find me. Awesome. Okay, and all of those links will be in the notes. Any last words you want to share on designing this great learning experience? I just want to bring it back to
1: the confidence piece. I think that you talked about that, you know, we as leaders in our own lives, and as leaders of organizations will never know it all, will we? And that's Part of the key is to go, okay, where can I find support? And, you know, in this particular circumstance, there's so much out there about how to uh, find support and gain that confidence in designing learning and, uh, and to know that everybody's in the same boat. Even I am, I'm still growing in my career, even though I wrote the book on it. It's, yeah. it's, it's totally normal and just wishing everyone success as they go on that journey themselves.
0: And thank you for having me here. Oh, thank you for being on the podcast, Beth. So take time to do the work to learn and grow. It's what gets you out of survival mode and moving to thriving in both your leadership and life. Go make the rest of your day awesome. If you found today's episode helpful, then you are going to love the training library. Many women leaders in nonprofits wish that they had a coach or a mentor to help them, but they don't believe that they or their organization can afford it. Oh, but you can. Inside of the Training Library membership site, you will not only get access to affordable and easily accessible ongoing personal and professional development training, you will also have access to a leadership coach at your fingertips. That way, when you hit those inevitable challenges that leadership will bring your way, you'll have both the resources and the support to navigate your way through them with confidence, composure, and while keeping your integrity intact. To find out more, head to kathyarcher.com slash library. If you are enjoying the show, I'd love it if you could leave me a comment or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Go make the rest of your day awesome.